Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hi, CBC family. We're the Owsleys. I'm Bruce. I'm Camille. I'm Britt. Here's a blessing from our family to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Have Have a great great Sunday. Sunday. Welcome everybody. We're in our series on numbers. And if you're just joining us, that is the blessing God gave Israel. Every day they said it together. Because they're going to wander in the wilderness. Started out being around two weeks, turned into 40 years. Bad day. And, and every day they got up and they remembered that God was enough to provide. But every day they forgot that God was enough to provide. And so we say that blessing each and every Sunday over our body. And today we're in Numbers chapter 12, guys. Numbers chapter 12, if you haven't gotten there in your Bible reading plan because Leviticus put that to death, I understand. If you haven't gotten there yet, number chapter 12, let me give you the top sheet of that, okay? Uh, some of Israel challenged God's divinely appointed leadership, and God gave them all leprosy, all right? Let's just go home right there. That's good. That's a sermon I should have preached in March of last year when COVID started, you know? I've been looking forward to this Sunday. No, um, it's a good story about how God appoints leaders and how we're supposed to respond. But before we get into the text, we're going to do what we do on Sunday mornings. We're going to take a minute and just prepare our hearts. We live in a critical, and we live in a, a just constantly, constantly uh, complaining culture. And so we come to this space knowing full well that God's going to meet us here, that the Spirit's going to speak to our spirit, that every time we open the scriptures, we get to remind ourselves or see God in a brand new way, and we see his goodness again and again and again, because like Israel, we're a people that easily forgets. So we're just going to take a minute, and I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that you spend some time in prayer, a few seconds, asking the Holy Spirit to guide your spirit, because we know God's going to speak to us today so that we can stop complaining and contribute to what God is saying in this space. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here, that we can sing, that we can read Scripture, that we can remember your goodness. As we open the text to Numbers 12 today, I, I pray that you remind us of the bigness of your church the bigness of your movement to redeem and restore, the bigness of what we're all a part of, and might that encourage us today. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to just take a few seconds and just pray that the Holy Spirit might speak, guide, convict you today as we read some text. And I'll say you ask that you pray for me, that I might um, just accurately portray the God that we that we worship this morning as we walk through the scriptures. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Numbers chapter twelve. I remember. One of the first pastoral ministry classes I took in Bible college. 
I remember being a group of, I don't know, 30 or so guys, and the prof got up there and said, how many of you guys want to be pastors of a big church? And everybody's hand went up in the air, every single one, right? And, and, and the prof looked at all of us and said, if that's your goal, leave and leave right now, you know? And I thought, well, that's not how I thought this was going to start in Bible college. <laughs> but, but he got up there and he said, about 90% of the churches in the world are under 200. About 80% of the churches in America are under 200. And 90% of the churches in America are under 250 to 300. If your goal and if you're here because you want to be the church of a thousand person church, you're probably not going to hit your goal. It was a loving thing to say. And here's the deal. I think we all ran into that place as wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, 19, 18-year-olds thinking we're going to change the world for God. And we are. The problem is you got to find this and fight this line between my importance and God's purpose. That's a hard one to find and to fight, especially in a culture, in a culture that really surrounds us with this idea that we are the most important thing. Not just Bible college, not just pastors, but all people. There's a, 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 a phrase that a Rutgers study kind of made up in about 2011 as it was starting to study social media. It, it had two groups, the me-former versus the informer. Have you guys heard of what me-formers are? You can probably fill in the gap. Me-formers and informers. Me-formers actually refers to social media users who post updates about their everyday actions, feelings, emotions, thoughts, lunches. You know those people, all right? Like I had this ham sandwich at Subway. Thank you. I've seen that. It's so good. Informers are those people that post things not about their personal life. Here's why I bring that up. They said that roughly 80%, 80% of things they found specifically on Twitter was me formers. Let me show you how big social media is now. As of May 2020, every second on average is around 6,000 tweets. That's 350,000 uh, per minute and 500 million tweets per day. That's 200 billion tweets per year. And if 80% are about what you ate for lunch, what is that doing for us, you know? If 80% are about me, how is that shaping and molding me? Snapchat users share about 530,000 photos a day. There are 32 billion people on Facebook and more than 300 million photos uploaded to Facebook every day. Every minute, there are 510,000 comments posted and 293,000 statuses updated. And each day on Instagram, there's 95 million photos and videos shared. Here is my whole point. If most of what we share is about us, we start to believe that our whole world bends its knee to us. And, 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 and please don't mishear me. I don't think necessarily that's all bad. I, I love seeing what my friend's life is. I love seeing their kids and what they ate for lunch. It gives me inspiration on where I'm going to go for lunch. It's good to share what we're going through and how we're feeling. It's good to do these things. The question we have to ask is, is it shaping us to believe that we're more important than we really are? Do we think our world revolves around us? That's the hard part. And that's going to be a battle, I think, that we fight here now going forward. It's a battle that the church fights all the time. I'm, I'm reading a book called The Church Called Tove. It's the Hebrew word for good, and it, and it talks about good churches from not good churches. And in the book, it goes to a couple unhealthy churches. And in each of those cases, the person on the platform started to believe that they were bigger than the purpose of the church. And it's a hard space to be at because it's so easy to do. I think culturally right now, it's easier to believe that the world is about us than ever before. And the question I have today is what happens as the people of God, as the church of God, when we buy into that kind of mentality? When we start believing that our desire for importance is the most important thing, how does it shape us? 
hasn't shaped the message of the gospel. That's what we get into today when we look at Numbers 12. That's what Moses' sister talks about. So Numbers 12 starts like this. Then Miriam, his sister, and Aaron, his brother, spoke against Moses. <laughs> so it doesn't start very strongly. It says that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And, and today we're primarily going to talk about Miriam because the text does. That word spoke there in the original language is a singular feminine verb. So what the text is implying there is that Miriam led this charge. That's why her name is first. It wasn't them getting together saying, man, I'm sick of this guy, Moses. It was Miriam going to Aaron and saying, can you believe Moses? Can you believe what he's doing? She led this charge of an uprising against, of a speaking against. And, and you might say, it's not that big a deal to speak against somebody. Let's, let's not be dramatic. Well, in the Old Testament, it was. Sometimes we read the scriptures through our lenses and not theirs. I, I remember the first time I read Shakespeare. Uh, and it was Romeo and Juliet. And believe me, I was forced to read it. <laughs> and I, I wasn't a kid that was like, mm, sounds good, thus. And so... Remember in the first couple pages of Romeo and Juliet, you get a Capulet that bites their thumb at a Montague, right? And then a brawl ensues. Like, what is wrong with biting your thumb at somebody, you know? But in that time, in that place, when Shakespeare wrote it, that's essentially flipping somebody off and saying, I want to fight you, right? We miss the purpose and the weight of what's happening because we view it through our eyes. When Miriam spoke against Moses, it's bigger than just, I had a bad day, and let me tell you what I don't like. She's saying he is unfit for leadership. And here's the problem. When God put him in leadership, she's not just speaking against Moses. She's speaking against God. And so she says, I'm going to speak against Moses, next phrase, because of the Cushite woman he married. A couple things we have to do with the text there. We're getting to the why she's speaking against Moses. We're getting to why she's angry and why she's upset. And the first thing that is said is that she's upset because he got married again. The word Cushite there, some of your Bibles have in parentheticals that it was an Ethiopian woman. It could be two different places. Most scholars would agree that this woman was Ethiopian. They would also agree that most likely what happened is Moses' first wife, Zipporah, passed away. And so Moses got remarried to an Ethiopian woman. And, and Miriam didn't like that. Miriam didn't like that because this woman wasn't a Jew. Miriam didn't like that because she wasn't one of them. But, but here's what you gotta know, is that she had no bounds or right to be upset. So in the Old Testament, especially in the Levitical law, God commands his people not to intermarry the Canaanite people, but not anybody else. She had no bounds of legality to stand on before Moses. She simply said, I don't like the woman you're marrying. And what we're going to get into here a little bit is really she's using this instance to bring up a deeper problem. And so often that's what we see with overly critical people. There was a Roman senator and a philosopher in the first century BC, and he said, when we speak evil of others, we generally condemn ourselves. I was talking with a friend a couple years ago. He was telling me a story about his work. And he said, man, I just got this guy that I'm working with that I can't stand, you know. And he does X, Y, and Z. And this is a good, godly man. He said, he does X, Y, and Z. And I don't know how to fix this guy. And I said, well, then don't fix this guy. I said, it sounds like you have a you problem. And he kept going on. Charlie, you don't understand. Like, he, he microwaves salmon. I just made that up. But that's a terrible thing to do, you know. <laughs> like, that's almost unfair. I'd be like, dude, I get it. Yeah, yeah, that is unholy. Anyway, so 
he was telling me all the things that he couldn't stand. I said, hey, man, it really does sound like you have a you problem. And, and I bring that up simply to say that most times when we criticize, it reveals an insecurity about ourself. And so Miriam took an opportunity that was change and said, Moses is not fit to lead, but it really had nothing to do with the woman he married. Look at the next phrase. It says, when we speak, I'm sorry, they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not only, has he not also spoken through us? And we see the why behind the problem. (laughs) Before we get into the why, a couple things to note here. What she's doing is not only not biblical, what she's doing is not healthy relationally. So she says, I have a problem with Moses. It's okay to have a problem with Moses. It's okay to have a problem with leadership. If you go to another church, I'm sure you probably will, not here. It's okay (laughs) to have a problem with the people that are leading you spiritually or in your jobs. The problem that Miriam's encountering is not just the fact that she spoke against Moses, but she didn't speak to Moses. And she didn't speak to God about it either. It's not like the text says she went to the tent of meeting and she got down before God and she says, God, I'm having a hard time with this Moses guy. I really wish you'd speak through me more. She didn't go to Moses and say, I'd love some more responsibility. I feel like I'm not contributing. She went to everybody else in the community and she said, we have a Moses problem together. Doesn't God use other people too? This is getting a little weird, right? And what we see is the beginning of things, of gossip that tear the fabric of our communities apart. They did then and they still do now. It's unbiblical. In Matthew 18, it talks about it. It says, if you have a problem with somebody in your church community, go to them directly. Because if you don't, that toxic complaining that we talked about last week will spread. And it's an unhealthy way to deal with relationships. If you've been around this community for a while, we have something we've used in the past called the relational covenant. And and, and all that simply is, is an agreement that says, this is how we want to treat one another. And it stems from an underlying belief that people are valuable. And so in our relational covenant, we say that we want to talk directly with one another rather than talking about one another. This means I will not share with others that which I should say directly to another person. And I've been in church long enough to know that means that you can't say, well, I have a a private prayer request, or you can't cancel it out by saying, bless their heart afterwards, everybody. This, this, this is Texas, this. It's straightforward saying keep short accounts. If you have a problem with somebody, go to somebody. Because what that does is it stops treating people like problems and treats people like people. It gives them the dignity of our attention. And if we don't speak to them, we're not. It's a more loving, respectful way to treat others that gives them value. (laughs) If we go around them, we don't think they have it. And so not only is Miriam speaking against Moses in a way that's not true, the way she does it The way she does it isn't the way that God says live with one another. So she speaks against Moses and she says, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? And this is the root of the problem. She's mad that God's not using her anymore like he used to. We begin to see a shift here in her philosophy from her being in more of the center center of importance to the periphery of importance in the Israelite community from her moving from a movement of we Israel together to I'm not as involved now what's going on with me mentality, you know? Because when you think about her background, and, and you know what, guys? It completely makes sense here if you look at the context. Miriam raised Moses. She saved his life in Exodus 2. And then she helped raise him. 
She was one of the core three that helped deliver Israel out of bondage in the first place. She was one of the first women filled with the spirit in Exodus. She helped lead these people. And then in the last chapter, if you remember, Moses said to God, I can't lead these people. It's too much of a weight. And God picked 70 people to fill with the spirit and Miriam wasn't one of them. She's losing her control and she's losing her importance in sight of what's going on. And she can't see past herself. In a culture that constantly surrounds me with the importance of me, I get it. But the problem with what Miriam is doing is that she is seeing all these changes and she's not celebrating what God's going to celebrate. Because at this point in the Israelite narrative, man, there's some things to celebrate. One, Moses just got married. When your brother gets married, you celebrate that stuff. You party and you say good job and you give hugs and high fives and you celebrate the possibility of what will be. She couldn't because... They were knocking on the door of the promised land. This is before we get into the 40 years of wanderings, which was pretty awful. This is, we're leaving Sinai on the way to Canaan. We're going to knock on the door and God is going to deliver in a way he promised generations and generations and generations ago. These people should wake up every day with an expectancy and an excitement about what God is doing in and through them, about what he's about to deliver to them. But she couldn't because she said, God's not using me anymore like he used to. Doesn't God speak through other people other than Moses? Where is my role? She moves from, I've done all of these things so far. I deserve to be utilized in a way that I feel is right. So we get into this notion of when you move from the we to the me in perspective of how we see God's movement, you move into this land of entitlement, you know? So in Bible college, I took a a church planting class. And one of the lessons they hammer home is it's called the the church planting law of scaffolding, right? So scaffolding is what holds the structure up so you can build around the structure and it can grow and grow strong. And one of the truths about church planting that's really, really difficult is they say that if you start a church and you grow a church, if you get to 200, about 80% of the people that helped you plant the church won't be there at 200. They'll leave. And and that's difficult because what happens is in church growth models, really 200 is the big marker when you have to change how you run your church. And 200 is kind of like a line in church growth where if you don't change management systems, you won't grow outside of that. And so really what happens when you get to about over 200 people in a church, you have to divest leadership and you have to divest control to other people. And the seven people you started this church with have less say than they did when there was only 10 people in a room. And so often in church growth classes, they teach you they're probably not going to be with you because they can't stand that change either because they lose a lot of influence. It's hard. It's a rule in church planning because we want to be valued and we want to contribute. And so often it's really easy to take our eyes off of what God is doing big picture and think of God, of how God is not using me today. It's this plague of entitlement that we think that we've earned or deserved because I was there at the beginning. I should have a bigger say than somebody that joined yesterday. I've heard that a lot, right? Because I helped plant this church. I should be able to tell you what color carpet you have. I don't care. You can't all day long, right? There are little and big ways that we see it played out. Entitlement says that I deserve and and God says that he gets to decide, you know? Entitlement says that God needs me instead of I need God. Entitlement, entitlement tells the story of my importance instead of God's renown. But here's the sad part about it. This is why God doesn't like what Miriam's doing. Because at the end of the day, with this kind of philosophy, what the me over the we philosophy does, 
is it turns moments of celebration into points of sadness. Remember a couple years ago, we were on the CBC ski trip, which I'm told is going to be brought back this year and I'm very excited about. And uh, for the ski trip, we used to go and 10 or 15 guys would go with us and it's one of my favorite things that we do around here. And I cook all the food because I really like to cook food. And uh, I remember <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like what I cooked one night. And there's 15 guys in this room and I think I overcooked the carrots. Unforgivable. I get it, okay? <laughs> and I think I overcooked the carrots and I was, I was so angry. And I remember Brett Owsley, the guy you saw up there, he looked at me and he said, why are you mad? I said, Do you, are you eating the carrots? And he said, uh, yeah, they're good. And I said, no, they're not. <laughs> right? And here's my point. I was so angry. My point was I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in a cabin in the woods and I'm sitting with godly men that I love. And I'm sitting in a place where we can talk about how great God is all around us and in that room. And because I couldn't see beyond me, I couldn't celebrate what God was doing. And that's what happens when we shift and move from a philosophy of the purposes of God, which is we to the purposes of me, if we can't see past ourselves, we'll never be able to celebrate what God is doing beyond ourselves. And so Miriam's in this moment and she can't look up and see and celebrate the goodness of God because she can't see outside of herself. That's so sad. <laughs> That's so sad. But in a culture that constantly reinforces the me, it's really easy to slip into that. Am I serving where I want? Am I getting as much credit as I deserve? Am I, am I, am I? Instead of what is God doing? What is God doing? What is God doing? And so it says in our text, they spoke against Moses in this next phrase, and the Lord heard it. So the text says things like that. God hears all things, right? God sees all things. In Exodus 2 and 3, when he delivers his people, He's talking to Moses and he says, I've, I've seen the affliction of my people. And what that doesn't mean is like God was busy for a couple hundred years. And then he looked down and he's like, what's going on down there? What it means is when it says that in the text, it's not just that God hadn't always seen it. It said he finally decided to do something about it. Action is now coming. So when it says that God hears it, it's not that he didn't hear it all along. It's action is now coming. My, my daughter is in this phase of yelling, dad, 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 dad. We drive home, Right. And, and she'll yell, dad, dad, dad. And she'll just ask questions. And I will have my earbuds in with sound canceling on. And don't judge me. <laughs> and I will try, I will try my best. But she just gets louder and louder and louder. And her little, her little tone is so adorable, but so <laughs> piercing at the same time to finally there's a moment. I'm like, Eleanor, I hear you, you know? And I stop and I take my earbuds out and I have a conversation with her like a good dad would do 20 minutes ago, you know? And she's saying like, can we listen to Frozen? I'm like, oh, I should have done that, you know? <laughs> this idea that God always hears, but now he's actually gonna do something about it because he feels like he needs to. And so he says, I heard what was happening because, think about what's happening. Not just is his sister complaining about a brother, but this is God's appointed leadership structure. Aaron and Moses were priests and priests. Aaron and Moses were spiritual leaders in the camp. This isn't just somebody speaking ill about, this is betrayal, this is mutiny, and this is when a, when a sister goes against her brother. This is a big deal. So God says, I have to deal with this. And then what he's going to do is paint the picture of the kinds of people God uses versus the kinds of people that she is. So he says in the next phrase, now this man Moses was very humble, more so than any man on the face of the earth. Quick side note, guess who wrote that? <clears throat> Moses, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know how you, how you write to be like, okay, that's good, period. <laughs> you know, huh? 
I'm not going to go there. It takes a really humble man to write that and stay humble, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but Moses wrote that phrase. And it's really not a humble. It's just, it's just true. When you look at the story of Moses, God appeared to him in a bush that didn't be consumed by fire. And he says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. Moses, who grew up in Egyptian royalty. Moses, who was waited on hand and foot that God broke down over 40 years in the desert. Moses knew he was somebody, and then he found out he wasn't anybody. And then God said, you're going to be somebody. He said, I can't. I'm not good enough. Moses was a humble man. God literally had to convince Moses that God was big enough to use Moses. Moses was a humble man. Miriam was not. Miriam thought she was more important and should be used by God. Moses thought he wasn't anybody and couldn't even be used by God. God uses the latter because when he does that, those kind of people rightly reflect the glory of God to where it belongs on God. (laughs) They rightly reflect it on who God is. And really what you get when it says that Moses was a humble man there, that's not the typical term that we see in the Hebrew text for humble. It, it means devoutly dependent upon or uh, an always dependent person. So what you're seeing here is Miriam who is saying, I'm good enough to do this. And Moses saying, I'm never good enough to you, but God is. And he's juxtaposing the two. He's saying that I am a humble man. What it does is it brings up this question of how we see our role in God's kingdom. Do we operate in a way that says you need God or that God needs you? That's a question. In little ways we get to ask every day. Do we operate in a way that says you need God or that God needs you? A friend of mine, he's a pastor at a, a mega church in the area, very big, very popular. And he was in charge of the staff for a little while. And, and this church gets really amazing people to come and volunteer and serve. A lot of, you know, DTS grads and seminary grads and fill in the blank in between. And he said, one of my favorite things to do is when people come and they say, I'm ready to serve here. Sometimes <clears throat> when you graduate with a really great degree, you think that you're God's gift to the church you're walking into, right? And so he said, he'd look at these people and say, great, we need help in the two-year-old room, you know? <laughs> and, and he said, I could tell a man's character if they said, no, thanks, I'm good. Or if they said, sure, wherever you need me, right? Do you act like, You need God or God needs you. Moses was a humble man because he always knew that he needed God, even if he led the people. And so God says, the Lord spoke immediately to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The three of you come to the tent, a meeting, that's where God did his business with people. And so the three of them went, verse five, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. Then he called Aaron, Miriam, and Moses, and they came, and they both came forward. Sorry, Aaron, Miriam. You get this, like, call-out moment. I'm a big fan of Top Chef. It's that moment at the end when they say, hey, you two stay. And you're like, oh, no, you know? (laughs) You two stay. The rest of you can go back. And so he looks at the two of them, and he says, hear my words now. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not like this. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face openly and not in riddles, and he will see the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So what God is doing here is saying, just so you know, Moses is different than you, and I'm going to use him differently than you because I can and I do. What we have to see as we read through Numbers, and really Exodus and and Deuteronomy as well, is I know as Americans, we like to read this text and put ourselves in the role of the hero, even though oftentimes we aren't. We are not Moses. 
Moses was one of the closest men to God in the history of all people. Moses was a type of Christ that they looked back to and said, Moses was the mediator and the only man that literally saw the form of God. Think about that. Nobody else had seen, David begged to see the the form of God, and God said no. But God said to Moses, you can see my form. Not much of it, but some of it. Otherwise, you're going to die. Moses knew God like nobody else did or has. And he said, with other prophets, I speak in dreams and riddles. With Moses, we meet face to face. Think about that. He's saying that Moses is different from you. Don't think that I use you the same or you are the same. And here's the deal. That's okay. That's okay. I think this translates really well to the church today because, look, all of us won't have the same gifting. All of us won't be able to be on stages or singing. Thank God I don't sing. I mean, we know what we're gifted at and what we're good at. And and there's a beauty in that because when we come together and, and we bring our difference of gifts, what we see is a diversity in the goodness of God that we wouldn't see otherwise. I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota yesterday. And you're all thinking, why? I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota yesterday. My family's there. And uh, one of my uncles passed away a few months ago. So I got the privilege of doing the funeral. And so we had a celebration of life. And what was fascinating to me was that as people got up there and told different stories of him, I found out some things I didn't know about him. There was a lot of poems read, lots of poems read. He was in a poetry club, I guess. I had no idea. Um, and so at the end of it, I'm talking with some of my cousins and they said, I didn't know this, and I didn't know this, and I didn't know this about this man I've known for 40 years, you know? And the beauty is, as we bring our differences of opinions and our differences of experience and our differences of service into the church, what we see is a diversity of God's goodness that we wouldn't see otherwise. We get in trouble when we say, there's a job that I want, God give me that. And we trust. And we recognize what Miriam's about to recognize, that We follow a God with a bigger purpose than any individual person. We saw a God with an individual person used towards a greater purpose. So this last May, I was on paternity leave, and we have a teaching team at CDC, and they got up here and taught. It was outstandingly good. I'm glad I have a job still. And I remember as we've been leading this team and going through courses with this team and teaching through things with this team over the last six or seven months, one of the first lessons that we try to instill is... As you teach, you need to be you. Don't get up here and try to be Matt Chandler. Don't get up here and try to be Charlie. Just be loud and long. There's Charlie. But don't get up here and do these things because it's not going to work for you. You need to speak with the voice that God gave you. So some people are funnier than others, and some are drier than others, and some are more charismatic than others, and some need a manuscript to read, and others don't. You need to be who God made you to be to be fully what God wants you to be and how he's going to use you. And living into that reality is important. That's what Miriam's figuring out. She's figuring out, I want this job, but God said, no, this job is for somebody else. Remember the purpose of the we instead of the culture of me that you're falling into. And so it says, the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. After the cloud had departed from above the tent, there was Miriam, leprous as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam and realized that she was leprous. Again, if you challenge God's divinely appointed leaders, you get leprosy. There's your application and takeaway, you know? I'm saying, I'm reading the text, everybody. I don't know what you want from me. That's what I get paid to do. No. So God gave Miriam leprosy. And we talked about wrath a little bit last week. I think most times in the Old Testament, when you see the wrath of God, God's dislike for actions of man and the consequences of that, it mostly looks like God saying, I'm going to remove my hand of mercy and you're going to feel the weight of the decisions you've made. In this instance, it wasn't that. 
In this instance, it was, you did something, and I'm going to show you what you did was wrong, you know? It's like my daughter keeps hitting her baby brother in the face. And so I cannot do anything about that. And she can realize as she gets older, if she keeps punching people, she's going to have a lonely high school, right? Or I can put her in timeout, which is happening now, you know? It's this idea that God is going to act against Miriam to show her that what she did was incredibly hurting towards not just Moses, but the mission of God that's bigger than any person that follows God. And so he gives her leprosy. And Aaron said to Moses, so Lord, please do not hold this sin against us in which we have acted foolishly and have sinned. Do not let her be like a baby born dead whose flesh is half consumed when it comes out of its mother's womb. That seems like a really harsh sentence, but you have to understand leprosy in the first century world and leprosy in Moses' time. The Bible talks about it in two constructs, in in the Mosaic time and in the first century world. Leprosy was a skin disease, and, and they didn't know how you got it, and they didn't know how to cure it. They just knew it spread everywhere. And so... They lived in a world where there was a disease and there was a lot of unknown and that terrified them. When we live in a world with a disease and a lot of unknown, everybody buys all the toilet paper at Costco, all right? (laughs) Still irrational. (laughs) But in the first century world, we get more context to this. And even in, in the camp of Moses, if you had leprosy, you had to live outside of the camp. You couldn't touch people. If you walked inside of the camp, you had to say, I'm a leper and I'm coming towards you. And people would give you a wide berth. You couldn't give ritual sacrifices if you were covered in leprosy. The crazy part that Miriam's realizing is she wanted more importance and God gave her a disease that actually made her unequivocally less important in the eyes of everybody around her. She wanted to be the center of the community and this disease kicked her out of the community altogether. In the first century world, they say leprosy is literally the disease of the living dead. And so Aaron says, please don't keep it this way. Please take this away because it'd be better for her if she was dead, essentially. And so Moses cried to the Lord and said, heal her now, God. That's my favorite sentence in this whole story. If I'm Moses and my sister turns on me, if I'm Moses and my sister not only turns on me but doesn't talk to me about it, if I'm Moses, I am not saying heal her. I'm saying you get what you deserve. And in this context, rebellion of this nature had two consequences. One, they would completely kick you out of the camp altogether. They would have left her in the desert and say, see you later, good luck. Or two, they would have stoned her. Either way, she's dead. Actions of this magnitude weren't treated lightly. And instead of all those things, instead of Moses doing what he could do that was justifiable by the law because of her actions, what Moses did is say, God, heal her now. Moses was a humble man that knew he needed God. And so what we see as you read the story, as Moses prays and God says, after seven days, you can bring her back in. She was shut outside, shut outside the camp for seven days and the people did not journey on until Miriam was brought back in. So literally, there's two and a half million people walking with him. God paused everybody and said, we're gonna wait so you can all watch my grace to bring this woman back in. Think about that. And like I said last week, when we talk about wrath, we have to talk about grace because when we see the wrath of God, we also see the grace of God. We see God say, you made this big mistake, but... I'm still gracious, even though you don't deserve it. And he waited for her. He waited and said, okay, now let's go again together. So why is making a me culture out of what should be a we culture bad? Because we don't celebrate where God says celebrate. We can't see outside of ourselves to celebrate what God is doing outside of ourselves. But what's the solution to that problem? Because this, this is the last time we hear from Miriam. Not in a bad way. It just is the last time we hear from Miriam, which means she just 
followed and served in whatever capacity and role God asked her to after this. And it wasn't in the center of the camp, but if it was, she would have done that. What we see in this text is the way that you remember that it's a me culture and not a we culture is you literally remember the we by realizing the grace that God showed me. That's it. In a culture that so clearly, clearly tries to communicate that you're the center of your own reality, the reason and the way that we don't fall into this false construct of saying God's work is about me is we remember the grace that he showed me in the first place. We remember that we don't deserve to be used by God at all. He's good. We remember that what he does with all of us is bigger than what he does with any single one of us. We remember. And we tell the story of God's amazing grace. You know the cure to selfishness? Grace. You know the cure to pride? Grace. You know the cure to thinking that God needs you? Realizing and remembering how much you needed God in the first place. We remember the we by by realizing the grace that God showed me. (laughs) Here's a Amazing chapter in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Very popular on some Christian coffee mugs. And this week, just read it every day. Because it starts with, this is where you were, and then verse 4 hits, and there's a but there, which is beautiful. It says, this is where you are now. Not that you deserved it or earned it, but God. We read that verse, and we remember as a community that God acted when we didn't deserve it. And what that means is I'll serve God in whatever capacity I can because I understand the depth of his restoration and redemption. I get it. And so how do we keep a culture of me? We press into the grace. We press into the grace that he showed me. And so we tell that story. And there's a couple different ways, like I said, that we can do it, but it starts with just remembering what God did for you, because it's really easy to forget in a culture that puts you at the middle of it and ads on Facebook and Instagram and everywhere that are centered around what you need all the time. We begin to believe the world is too. And we want to be people, we want to be people that celebrate, that, that, that celebrate the goodness of God in other places. We want to be a church that sees how God moves and acts outside of just this church. Because there are so many good churches within like 20 feet of our doors, you know? This is Dallas. It's the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Yeehaw, you know? There are so many ways that God is moving. And, and I'm afraid not just individually, but church-wide, if we don't look out and see, If we only think God works and moves at crossroads, we got a problem. Because then we can't celebrate what God is doing everywhere else. A couple weeks ago, my friends at at Valley Creek, they did this thing called Serve the City. And it's really beautiful. And uh, their their pastor at that campus guy named Jason Hillier. He's an amazing dude. And he called and said, hey, are you at the church? I said, I am. And they brought up this basket full of gifts for our staff and our elders and our deacons. And they wrote every one of us a note. If you haven't picked it up, it's in your box upstairs. (laughs) Um, And it was chocolate bar and a pen and, and a couple other things and, and a notebook, but it was just their way of saying, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys, and we're celebrating what God is doing in and among the work of CBC. I want to be that kind of church, so good job them, you know? I want to celebrate what God does everywhere because I know, I know, I need to know that God is bigger than simply me, because that's a God worth worshiping. <laughs> that's a God worth following. That's a God that we say to everybody else, get on board. He's redeeming and restoring. May we be a people in a church that always remembers that God's working as the we way bigger than simply me. Let me pray for us. God, I am thankful that you're bigger than me. I'm thankful that I get to serve you in whatever way I can. (laughs) whether it's here on Sunday mornings today or 
somewhere else tomorrow. I'm thankful that you include me, us, in the process of telling your story of redemption that's much needed. My prayer this morning is in a culture that is centered around the individual, centered around the me. Might we be a beacon of hope for the greater story of what God is doing through all of us together? There's a bigger purpose and picture for this world than just my story and my life. So give us a boldness just to call it out and and, and give us a a sensitivity to see it in our own lives. It's so hard to see so that we might be a church that truly celebrates the work of God in these walls and outside of it too. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.